I next met with Ms. Ann Culkin, and to begin, she presented a 60-year-old woman from her practice. Never smoker, diagnosed with widely metastatic lung cancer at the time of our meeting. Her presentation was back pain. That's what got her to a doctor to figure out what was causing her back pain. Can you talk a little bit more about her and what she was doing in her life at that point in time? She is a housekeeper and was working in a hotel, doing housekeeping for a franchised hotel in New York. Married. She has two children. Her son works on Wall Street in understanding clinical trials and bringing medicine to the financial piece of America. Her daughter works from home. Lovely, well-educated children. The patient is actually Spanish-speaking, immigrated from Ecuador with her husband, and they have a life here in New York. Her husband is now retired. He was a union carpenter, and they have a very nice life in New York City. She developed chronic back pain, unrelieved by her own over-the-counter interventions, finally sought medical attention. They did a plain film x-ray of her lower back. And when they did that, they actually caught her lung in the lung field. They saw a shadow. And that caused further pursuing of a workup. She did have a slight cough. However, her cough was non-productive, really not bothersome, but that was her cough. So a CT chest abdomen pelvis was then ordered, and she was found to have a left lower lobe lesion, and a PET was done, and that revealed hypermetabolic disease, including lymph nodes of the chest. Uh, She also had an MRI of the brain, which showed some microscopic metastatic lesions consistent with disease. Her biopsy actually showed a moderate to poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma. We requested diagnostic molecular testing, but this lady was so symptomatic from her cancer with pain-related issues that we went ahead and started intravenous chemotherapy. So she got first-line cisplatin, pemetrexid, and bevacizumab. Again, all three drugs chosen and including the bevacizumab first-line in order to penetrate the brain. And about six weeks after we started, we got her diagnostic molecular path results, which indeed showed that she had an EGFR XI19 15 base pair deletion. So we already had some arsenal in our back pocket. And she continued with the CISPEM-BEV for six cycles and then maintenance therapy for almost seven months and then suffered progression of disease in the lung. Before we go on, can we just sort of backtrack about a number of points that you've already gotten into? First of all, You said that she initially started out with cisplatin, pemetrexate, and bevacizumab. And cisplatin is kind of a little bit of an unusual choice, at least in the United States. More often people are given carboplatin. What's the thinking in this case and in general about the choice of platinum agents up front? So cisplatinum is our first choice in my area because we are so well prepared to support people through giving cisplatin. We also recognize that this lady had a very high performance status, that of 90% Karnofsky scale. And so recognizing that she had no other comorbidities, we selected cisplatin as the choice for her. Carboplatin is given to patients who have other comorbidities, including renal failure or potential renal difficulties or insufficiencies, as well as hearing loss is another contraindication to giving the cisplatin over the carboplatin. And so we kind of tease out those decisions on how best to do it. Other people that have other comorbidities, such as diabetes, for instance, who have an underlying neuropathy, we would never give cisplatin to, but we do give carboplatin to those patients. We also know that carboplatin can potentially cause a pancytopenia, much of a quicker onset than that of cisplatin. 
And because of our delayed emesis and highly emetogenic supportive meds, we're able to really treat people successfully with cisplatin. And this lady was able to take six cycles of cisplatin with her pemetrexid and bevacizumab. And she traveled down a route that most people travel when they get chemo and bevacizumab. As you said, she got maintenance therapy. And in this case, she got pemetrexid and bevacizumab as maintenance. How was her quality of life when she was on the maintenance compared to when she was getting the cisplatin with the pemetrexid and bev? So certainly her fatigue improved. Fatigue was her biggest complaint on the cisplatin. Fatigue, that inability to get up and go, kind of got up and went, so to speak. And she was not very active in her daily life for the first five to 10 days post the infusion of her treatment. As we got past cycle four, we actually brought her back for uh, day plus two of intravenous hydration, just to give her the benefit of intravenous fluids for hydration to tolerate the cisplatin. Again, her family was so supportive, they would do anything and everything to continue with this lady who was so well. I will also tell you that her son had a lot of knowledge about chemotherapy, particularly oncologic therapies, because of his business. So he was very vested in what his mother was receiving as well. So he would recite data for us and really kind of push the envelope a bit. And once he knew of her molecular profile, he was very anxious to get erlotinib started. However, we held that until we knew that we had exhausted her first-line therapy. So another issue with this lady's presentation was the fact that she was symptomatic, you said, with pain, so much so that you really wanted to get her started on treatment, even without the molecular assays. What happened to the pain and the symptoms when she got the chemobevacizumab? Her pain remarkably improved to the point where she was only using PRN oxycodone. So this is a lady who was on a fentanyl patch for long-acting control, and we were able to peel that back, and she really only needed PRN oxycodone as a rescue. So we saw a dramatic response. What happened in terms of imaging of the tumor, both throughout her body as well as in her brain with this chemo-bev treatment? I'm happy to tell you that everything shrunk. We achieved the outcome of which we were looking for, of which her brain mets literally disappeared, melted away, as the radiologist would have called it, as well as the disease in her lung and her bones. The lytic lesions were really healing, particularly in her pelvis. That's great. This lady was somewhat unusual for a patient presenting with a metastatic lung cancer and that she was so symptomatic. I think there are a lot of other patients who are not quite as symptomatic. How do you approach the issue if you already know that the patient has an EGFR tumor mutation, either the XN19 one that she had or one of the the other ones, L858R? How do you approach chemo as opposed to EGFR TKI first line? So it's a very individualized choice, and really the patient and family are very much involved in that choice of decision-making for treatment. So if a patient has widely metastatic adenocarcinoma with a molecular mutation, that being an EGFR mutation, based on how their clinical presentation is, as well as their overall quality of life, functional status, and we don't have the results, but we know they're pending, we offer the patient to wait for those results. And that's where the oncology nurse plays the biggest role in helping those patients wait for results. It's also very important for the care partners and the patients can often have a thought process where the cancer is just growing by leaps and bounds in their body as they sleep at night. It's just growing rapidly. So you have to help patients understand that waiting is perhaps in their best interest, that you can actually use targeted therapy first line for people who have mutations. And we have been able to do that very successfully in many, many patients. However, a patient such as the one we're talking about really was 
in tremendous pain and to the point that she couldn't walk and therefore her quality of life, she couldn't eat, she couldn't take a deep breath. There were so many functional symptoms that she had that we were forced, if you will, to use such a strong word, but we held the hand of we could help you with treatment. And so that's why, you know, within a week, we were able to start intravenous chemotherapy. So getting back to this lady's course, before we go to the second step, what was her quality of life like once she had this response and did she go back to work? She never went back to work. She is now disabled because of really back pain. This woman could no longer maintain her work as a housekeeper. And truth be told, her pain medicine, we had some challenges initially with side effect profile, particularly that of nausea and terrible sweating from the meds. Once she got on her to her maintenance therapy, she talked about traveling to her children's home. She talked about traveling with her husband. So really her optimal quality of life is exactly what we had hoped for in treating this woman. So she fortunately had a great response. She has improved quality of life. And then you mentioned that she had disease progression, I guess, about a year after starting? It was a year, almost to the date of progression of disease, yes. And did she have any new symptoms, or was this something picked up with the imaging? It was imaging, actually. Yes, it was a CT of chest. We also could palpate some lymphadenopathy in her subcarinal nodes. And what about the brain mets? Did they regrow? You know, her brain mets never grew. Never grew. But she did have growth of some of the other lesions in the lung and other places. And what was your thinking at that point? So we knew about her molecular profiling of her EGFR mutation. So we right away went to prescribing erlotinib, 150 milligrams daily for this woman. So there is another TKI, EGFR TKI afatinib, that's also approved as first-line therapy. How do you all decide between those and what made you choose erlotinib for this patient? So for this woman, we chose erlotinib because of the high incidence of grade 3, 4 toxicity with afatinib, that being skin rash, diarrhea. We select erlotinib because those grade 3, 4 toxicities are significantly less when you do compare the both of them. And what do you generally say to a patient who's about to begin an EGFR TKI, specifically erlotinib? What information do you give them and what do you tell them in terms of contacting you? So it's very important to assess one's ability to adhere to oral therapy. Assessing for things like swallowing, depression, really understanding oral adherence, and trying to get a sense that this patient will be able to take oral therapy at home daily. So that being said, this lady was very motivated, and access to getting the medicine was actually a smooth process for this patient where we were able to write a prescription. Her specialty pharmacy was able to fill it for her. The interesting piece, though, is when you utilize specialty pharmacies is that the prescription is being mailed to the patient's home. So validating the actual drug, dose, correct safety handling is very important. So We have a method where when the medication arrives to the patient's home, that they call us and we validate with each other over the phone. Sometimes we'll even have patients take pictures of the medicine, of the packaging, so that we can really validate what that is. You know, when you're a nurse 30 years like I am in oncology, you know, there's the five rights of medication administration. And because of this process of oral therapy delivery at home, we're very conscious of how we have to raise the bar a little bit and a better understanding of safe administration. So we just are very poignant about having patients understand their medicine and when to take the medicine. What do you observe in people who receive these agents, particularly in terms of dermatologic issues as well as GI issues? 
Obviously, skin rash is one of the biggest, rash eruption is one of the biggest challenges in helping patients understand. So we have a sit-down education session where we actually teach patients. There are patients who come having looked on the internet where they've seen pictures of rash eruption and have a vague understanding of what could potentially happen to them. I had a patient actually yesterday who discussed what happens on the blog and how many people stop using the medicine because of their cosmetic appearance. So that needed to be addressed with that particular patient. For this woman, we addressed the need for skincare from the beginning, with that being moisturizer, that being protection from the sun, and to take her medicine every single day on a daily basis, never to forget. And we often tell people that all will forget, but they have to try their best never to forget to take their medicine. So we rely on caregiver support to achieve that as well. And this lady happened to have a phenomenal husband who is with her every step of the way and was very conscious of never missing a dose. However, this lady did miss a few doses because she fell asleep. Both of them fell asleep and forgot. So this woman was taking her Erlotinib at bedtime. As a result, people do fall asleep and forget. So we really do validate and work with them. Much of our communication is done via the telephone. As a nurse, I'm calling the patient, they're calling me. We do have a portal system for email communication as well. So this is when her family, her two children, were very involved in email through our portal messaging system on side effect management and help that way. This lady did very well with a skin rash eruption. She had minimal to no diarrhea, actually from being on pain medicine for so long. She actually was thrilled to hear that potentially loose stools and diarrhea could be a potential side effect. So for her, it was a a win-win in her mind. So can you talk a little bit about what happened when she started taking the erlotinib, both in terms of the tumor as well as side effects? This was a patient who responded beautifully. Within five to six days, this woman felt better. That is the best words I can use because muy bien would be her word. But she actually, her pain got better. Her breathing got better, although that was something that she reported, although she never really complained about breathlessness, but it was something that she felt better. So things clearly were better after really just five days on therapy. We brought this lady back at day 14, so two weeks on therapy, to do a tox check, check her liver function, check her. And she did have mild rash eruption at that point, particularly on her nose and chin. So we did an intervention of prescribing oral antibiotics. Our selection is doxycycline for these patients, as well as topical eclometasone, which is a topical steroid cream. And we followed her back in two weeks later because it was time for a CAT scan. And indeed, her disease response was amazing. And so then our algorithm for treatment is to follow these patients every three months. So she didn't have to come back. So this was a lady who was seeing us every three weeks, plus two days for intravenous hydration in the beginning of her intravenous chemotherapy. Now she was on a, she viewed it as a break coming every three months. But it's in those interim periods where the use of the telephone and the patient portal system is most vital. We keep this running list of patients to do an oral adherence check-in just to see how they're doing on oral chemotherapy. Again, it takes a lot of nursing time, takes a lot of effort on both the patient and the nurse to achieve such a dialogue and really relationship-based care is our motto. I'm curious how this lady compared her, you mentioned the inconvenience issue or convenience issue. What about how she felt on the Erlotinib compared to, say, when she was on the chemo Bev? Her fatigue was significantly less, and that's what she was most appreciative of because her and her husband became the babysitters for her daughter who had had a newborn. So to her, that was the joy of her life in helping her daughter and her grandchildren. So she was able to babysit. She was able to pick up the kids. She was able to really be an active participant in doing things that she loved to do, which was being a mom first and a grandmother. So for her, her life was terrific. They also traveled. They were able to go to Florida for a couple of months and enjoyed time down there. 
And they were able to visit their son who had relocated out of New York to Boston. So they were able to go visit him as well. So travel was extremely important to them. So she sort of moves into this second phase. It sounds like she did quite well with and having a response and the tumor shrinking. I see that she was on therapy for a year. So that's really awesome that that happened. What was the next step? So the next step was that she suffered progression of disease on a CT scan. We saw that she had progression in her lung. And we went ahead and did a, actually, she suffered progression of disease, and she also had her back pain returned. So the back pain returning was truly the agony of defeat, if you will, because we all knew that that was the source of the beginning of her cancer and how she got to us. And it literally it felt like it came out of nowhere. This lady was cruising. We did a CAT scan, showed progression. But really, she became really terribly symptomatic with pain. And we had seen her on a Monday one week, and she was functional. She could walk. And her pain, we tried a fentanyl patch again with oxycodone rescue. However, that was not successful. It just didn't help her with the pain. We sent her to our pain management specialist who recommended gabapentin to help, thinking it was more of a neuropathy or neuropathic pain because of the location of her pain. She could actually pinpoint the pain like along the sciatic nerve in her pelvis area. So we actually, we sent her for an MRI spine, and indeed, it showed progression of disease in her spine and pelvis. We should probably point out that, you know, actually this story up to this point is very common, you know, she had a great response with EGFR-TKI and chemotherapy, but then in spite of that, the disease then progresses. I guess in the past, at this particular point, now having gotten first-line chemo and gotten an and EGFR-TKI, up until pretty recently, there weren't a whole lot of great options at this point. This is true. And just following her trajectory, we're already two years into stage four lung cancer therapy treatment. So from having been a lung cancer specialist, oncology nurse for 23 years, this is amazing. This is really an amazing statistic of what we're, how we're seeing the longevity of people and their quality of life. I mean, this lady had a high-functioning quality of life with minimal to no distress throughout the course of therapy thus far. Yeah, you know, I was thinking, I've been interviewing you for a long time. I mean, I think maybe at least 10 years. And it is amazing how many things we're going to talk about today that we wouldn't have been talking about two, three years ago. And I, as a nurse, have continued to evolve in the care delivery model of how we're treating patients with stage 4 lung cancer and the molecular profiling, what that's brought to the table. And, of course, immune therapy. Right. So we're going to get to that. So now this lady is in a situation where a couple of years ago, you really wouldn't have had a lot of great options. I see that she did get one of the options that in the past hasn't been very effective, which is second-line chemotherapy. What happened there? So we had the availability to give second-line therapy, and we selected docetaxel remesirumab. The reason behind that was the data had just been released of how effective this was, and several physicians in our group had had patient case reports demonstrating success. So we opted as that treatment for her. We also knew that we wanted to biopsy this lady to see if she developed an acquired mutation. And so we kind of did a lot at once, so to speak. So because this lady was so symptomatic from back pain radiating down her leg from a spine metastasis, we went ahead and did some radiation to her spine. At the same time, right around as they were simulating her for radiation, she had a lung biopsy in our interventional radiology area. And so that biopsy was intended to look at the development of acquired resistance mutations, such as T790M for the EGFR mutant patients. And now you're talking about, again, a, another mutation in the tumor. Correct. 
Correct. So you did that biopsy. And before you go on to that, you mentioned that she received docetaxel with ramucirumab in the past. The typical second-line chemotherapy would have been docetaxel, as you mentioned, ramucirumab, which is an antibody, monoclonal antibody to the VEGF receptor, so an anti-angiogenic kind of therapy was relatively recently approved. What do you know? What did you say to her about that therapy? She'd already been on bevacizumab. Is it sort of the same kind of issues? Very similar, yes. And one of our concerns was her blood counts, because we know from the docetaxel remesirumab data that pancytopenia is a potential side effect. So we were very concerned about administering this medication to a patient who had been previously on intravenous chemotherapy for a year. So we were concerned about that. The patient was also very concerned about hair loss, of which we know docetaxel could potentially cause alopecia. So we were conscious of that. This lady was able to take only one dose because the pain became so significant that we had to switch to radiation. And just for symptomatic palliative care, relief of her pain. And she developed lower extremity weakness of that left leg. So that's why we went to radiation and having to stop this medicine because she really derived no benefit from it at all. And what happened with the radiation therapy? So the radiation therapy was a success. She achieved optimal pain control. However, the cancer in her lung continued to grow. So we moved right through the month of September with radiation. She did suffer with thrombocytopenia, but then we were able to just give her a break to recover, manage her pain, nutritionally support her with counseling and interventions of megastrol acetate to have her appetite increase and maintain her weight, which she was able to do. However, then in October, we were still waiting on the acquired resistance mutation analysis, and we went ahead and gave more chemotherapy using a doublet of gemcitabine plus vinarelbine. And I see that the biopsy, that she actually had a subcutaneous lesion? She did. At that point, she had a subcutaneous lesion in her chest wall, and she developed more lymphadenopathy in her neck, and she actually developed a subcutaneous lesion in her forehead. Now, of all the subcutaneous lesions I've seen, I've not seen one on her forehead, but it was really palpable. And it just goes back to her daughter actually picked it up, and I asked her to send me a picture. So she actually sent me a picture of her mother's forehead, and you could really appreciate this subcutaneous metastasis that was palpable on exam when we finally saw her. I imagine this is a really scary moment both for the patient and her family, but then you got back the result of the biopsy showing that, in fact, like about half of patients in this situation, she did have this mutation, which we know... There's been a lot of benefits seen with a whole new class of EGFR TKI. So what happened at that point? So unfortunately, there was no clinical trial for this lady to enroll on. The clinical trials were ending, as everyone is aware, for these acquired resistance testing. So we didn't have a clinical trial to offer this woman, and nor did her son, who was living up in Boston. He was very willing to take her out of our practice to an area that perhaps could have an open clinical trial. But there was no availability for this patient at that time. So we went ahead and continued with the erlotinib, knowing with hope, (laughs) hopefully knowing, that we would have osimertinib available to us before the end of the year. So we were kind of betting a little bit that we would have something to offer this patient. In the interim, her blood counts were still, having given her just two doses of gemcitabine and vinarelbine, she developed thrombocytopenia, so we needed her to recover as well. So we know a patient like this in the past would be looking at a very, very dismal short-term prognosis, but there are two of these agents out there, osimertinib and rosalitinib, that seem to be effective in this situation. 
And then one of them, osimertinib, got approved by the FDA, something that seems to be happening every day now in oncology. And I see then she received it after it was approved? She did. So osimertinib was approved on Friday, November 13th, Friday the 13th. We filled out the application for the prescription to achieve delivery. We kept this lady on her erlotinib. And the day before Thanksgiving on November 25th, so within 10 days of trying to seek and get the medicine for the patient, it was delivered. And so she stopped erlotinib on Tuesday the 24th and started osimertinib on Wednesday the 25th, all via the telephone all via photographing the picture of the medicine. I had never seen what osimertinib pills looked like, except images on the internet. So we were able to validate and verify her medication, and she started to take it. And what happened? So within five days, the neck lymphadenopathy, neck node, was less hard, according to the patient, as well as the subcutaneous met on her forehead was a little bit flatter. So we saw her yesterday, which would have been two weeks on therapy for a tox check. And lo and behold, the lymph node in her neck is pretty much gone. Wow. And the subcutaneous met on her forehead is barely palpable. We know it's there because we've been monitoring it, but you can barely palpate it at all. Wow. The patient looks remarkable. She feels terrific. She has zero side effects as far as rash eruption, nail changes, or even loose stool diarrhea. Her energy, she's just remarkably better. And so when you have a target, that's that's where the target comes from. When you're targeting the target, it really works. And the thing that's really interesting about this new class of agents, and osimertinib is the first one approved, is I guess they don't target what they call the wild-type EGFR in the normal tissue. They only target the tumor. So you don't see, what I've heard is you see little or no rash or diarrhea. Is that what your understanding is? That's exactly my understanding. So I currently have three patients, FDA-approved osimertinib, who are tolerating it beautifully with minimal to no side effects at all. And I guess the story is pretty typical that you see these responses, objective responses, a lot of them in most patients, after patients progress on erlotinib, And again, the same side effect or lack of side effect issue. But the one thing I've heard about, and I don't know if you have any experience with it or know anything about it, is the other one, the rosalitinib, has been associated with hyperglycemia. You know anything about that? I do from the clinical trials, yes. Yes, I do. So that is a potential side effect for many patients. And as oncology nurses, it's another area of which we need to expand our knowledge in endocrinology and understanding and helping people and support them through episodes of hyperglycemia. So patients are given glucometers for testing, and it adds another layer of education for the patient, as well as expense in having patients check their blood sugars at home. Also, understanding why that happens is the jury still out as what the actual cause or pathophysiology pathway is that's happening with that medicine. So let's move on and talk about the other new agents being used in metastatic non-small cell. And of course, there's a lot of excitement about checkpoint inhibitors, anti-PD-1 and anti-PD-L1 antibodies. Can you provide a broad global perspective on this new treatment? So treating these patients on immunotherapies has been, up until this year, all on clinical trials with amazing responses in patients and subsets of different kinds of patients who have been responding rather well to immunotherapy. And we're continuing to tease out the data of exactly the select patient group that which we should be administering these medicines to. Maybe we can talk about some of the patient education aspects of some of these new agents. We were talking about the EGFR TKIs. 
What about patients who are going to receive, for example, nivolumab or pembrolizumab right now? What are some of the things that you go through from a patient education perspective with them? So it's very challenging to try and explain immunotherapy or revving up the immune system to a patient. It's challenging to learn it myself as a nurse, but to really try to then to explain it in the English language to a patient where you're revving up the dendritic cells to cause a cascade of responses within the immune system to heighten and rev up the immune system to thereby shrink and kill the cancer. And so that's the most simplistic term that we use to help the patients understand. As a nurse... These drugs, immunotherapy, has caused another set of side effects of which we are not accustomed to managing. From my old perspective, neutropenia, nausea, vomiting, hair loss were things that I was most focused on for much of my career. However, now with immunotherapy, you're looking at many side effect profiles, and we call it the itises, any itis, I-T-I-S. And that is colitis, pneumonitis, dermatitis, thyroiditis, things that need to monitor throughout the patient's course of treatment. And these are side effects that may not happen with the first dose, maybe the fourth dose. It could be a cumulative effect before you see a side effect. I did have a patient earlier this week with a really bad dermatitis related to, he had six doses of nivolumab, and he developed lower extremity swelling, his legs, he had grade four edema, and of course the skin began to weep, and as a result, we held the drug for him. We, we didn't commit to stopping it just yet. But his skin rash was examined by Mario Lacatur, who came up with the diagnosis of a psoriasis outbreak related to his drug. So helping patients understand that a skin reaction is actually a side effect of the drug, which could also be limiting of the further use of the drug, is a real challenge for this gentleman, who, by the way, had a remarkable response to nivolumab with his adrenal met shrinking almost unrecognizable on scan, and the several metastatic deposits in his lungs have all shrunk down. So he saw that he had, was having a response. So he didn't equate that his skin rash eruption was anything related to the chemotherapy. He just thought it was swelling in his legs. So as far as patients also having colitis or excessive amounts of diarrhea, having them understand that that could really result them in a hospitalization with electrolyte imbalance, particularly in elderly patients, coming to that understanding is a challenge for patients to recognize the symptoms early so we can have early interventions for these people. The pneumonitis, which is often can be interpreted as progression of disease, but actually may be a flare reaction, is also something that we deal with. Not so significant, but it does happen. And so as a nurse, when that patient's calling you to describe their increasing cough or breathlessness, you have to be aware of where you are in the course of their immunotherapy treatments to recognize that maybe they need to be seen. The flare reaction usually does happen after the first dose, however. So as you mentioned, it's really a mindset change because we're used to thinking about chemotherapy issues, alopecia, GI effects, cytocytal effects, and now we're looking at autoimmune, you know, stimulation of the immune system. And it also leads into the question of causing flare-ups of prior autoimmune diseases. And your man with psoriasis is a good example. How do you approach patients who have Problems like psoriasis, Crohn's disease is another one that's a concern in terms of using these drugs. So the jury's out with really which patient selection you should be using in these immune therapies. So personally, I haven't had any experience with someone who does have a diagnosis of Crohn's disease, but we've had to exclude, for instance, a patient who was HIV positive. So we were not able to administer this medicine to him. We do have people who have rheumatoid arthritis 
So that's another cohort of patients that the jury's out on whether or not you should be giving immunotherapy to somebody who has this. I guess this started out with melanoma, where they first they had the anti-CTLA-4 agents like ipilimumab, and these kinds of autoimmune problems were much more common. What I'm hearing in terms of using anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-1 antibodies is that most patients tolerate it without a problem. Is that your experience? It is my experience, yes. Honestly, this is a medicine that I have a Polish-speaking plumber who had really minimal to no response to intravenous chemotherapy. He was a smoker. He's an active smoker. As I sit here today, he's still smoking. We gave him this medicine. He's had a remarkable response, greater than 50% reduction in his tumor. I guess the other thing about PD-1 antibodies is actually the first approval was in squamous cell, which where there's a lot less options. Now it's also approved in non-squamous disease. But where along the line right now are these agents being brought in? So we bring them in after you have failed a prior platinum therapy. Yes, we do follow that FDA indication. So that's both squamous and non-squamous. It is, yes. And I guess also the people like your first patient with mutations, that's kind of a separate story. It is a separate story, and yet, you know, there continues to be a lot of discussion about mutation analysis, and the more mutations you have, perhaps the better you are a candidate for immunotherapy to have more things to target, if you will. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned your patient who was a current smoker, because I guess it looks like maybe smokers respond even better because they have more mutations or stimulating their immune system more. Is that your take? That's what, quoting Dr. Rizvi in the New England Journal, and yes, that, that seems to be the more antigens you have, and perhaps cigarette smoking creates those, that yes, but those are the prime patients. I will tell you, I have three patients right now who are never smokers. They do have mutations, EGFR mutations, and they are responding beautifully to immunotherapy. The one woman we saw her yesterday has metastatic disease in her brain, which is her only source of metastatic site is the brain, and she is highly functional, post-whole brain radiation, doing terrific. As we head into 2016, I think we're going to really understand the subsets of patients where this drug is most effective. Although trying to put this in perspective, so for example, we were talking about using targeted therapy before, for example, EGFR-TKI for EGFR mutations. And there, most of the patients do respond, although unfortunately, most of them also have progressive disease. My take with the checkpoint inhibitors is actually most of the patients don't respond, but the ones that do, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 percent, the responses are much longer. Indeed, yes, yes. That's exactly what we're seeing in our practice, yes. What's the longest you've seen a patient respond to a checkpoint inhibitor? So we have our star on pembrolizumab on clinical trial for 90 weeks. So she is the longest patient that I know of. So that's almost two years. Yes. Interesting. And interesting, so she was on a clinical trial and then moved on to the FDA-approved nivolumab. She was removed from the clinical trial due to not meeting resist criteria and progression. So we went ahead and gave her a little bit of a break post that clinical trial, and then she still had cancer. She still had lung cancer. She had exhausted all lines of conventional therapy. So we went ahead and gave her nivolumab, to which she continues to respond. So your patient that you were presenting before had received nabpaclitaxel. One of the things I wanted to ask you, and maybe connected into this issue of immune checkpoint inhibitors, is that the idea of not needing corticosteroids and sort of interfering with the immune system with nabpaclitaxel. How do you approach the issue of, you know, which taxane? We talked about docetaxel before, obviously paclitaxel. There's also nabpaclitaxel. How do you decide which one? 
So our institutional guidelines lead the way into what you can prescribe. And so nabpeclitaxel is reserved for patients who either have an allergic reaction to a taxane or are intolerant of corticosteroids. And so that is how we are able to select that drug. How about the difference choosing between docetaxel and paclitaxel? Or what do you find in terms of tolerability issues with docetaxel versus paclitaxel? It depends on the patient, in all honesty. It really does. And so you look to see what prior lines of chemotherapy they've had in the past. And you also need to talk about alopecia because docetaxel continues to be between paclitaxel and docetaxel causes more alopecia. So it is a real thing for many, many patients, even with stage four lung cancer, that they don't want to lose their hair. So administering paclitaxel seems to be, in that situation, the choice for that particular patient. Keeping with the theme of targeted therapy and genomic tumor changes, I wanted to ask you about management of patients with so-called ALK rearranged disease, and particularly the use of drugs like crizotinib, which is often used first line, and seritinib, and more recently approved electinib in second line. So one of the biggest side effects of those drugs is GI upset. So it's challenging to help patients take the drugs with or without food. We prefer without food. And so having them tolerate, if they can, working with crizotinib, for instance, is twice a day. So oral adherence is key to success. So ensuring that they can, in fact, take the medicine twice a day. Also helping support the GI upset from that medicine is also extremely important. Moving on to seritinib, again, GI upset is another potential side effect, as well as the visual changes, night blind, the potential for night blindness of that medicine, and helping patients understand they may need help at night, for instance, night blindness, driving, but also oral adherence being the key to their success and their outcome. Also, it's very interesting because we have crizotinib and because we have seritinib, it's very easy to tell a patient if first-line crizotinib does not do the job that we can right away move to another medicine. So the option for availability of medication and now electinib, also in that realm of your arsenal to attack this disease, is very empowering as a healthcare provider and offering options for people who will eventually succumb to their illness But just to know that you have what you have for targeted therapy is a great comfort sometimes. You mentioned GI problems. And actually, I've heard a lot about that as it relates to seritinib and also about whether or not the patients do better on a lower dose. One of the docs at your place, Mark Chris, I've heard him be quite verbal about this. Any comments about that and also about the new drug, electinib, which my understanding is maybe is better tolerated? Yes. So again, supporting the patient through the side effect is our biggest concern. And also, you come from the land of what you know from EGFR TKIs. And so if you can push through the side effect with supportive medicines, that's the best thing you can do. I work in a place where I'm very available as a nurse to the patient because of the support and resources that I have available to me as a collaborator in a primary practice. So we do our best to support those patients, particularly with GI upset, and it is abdominal cramping, belly pain, potential for diarrhea. So again, addressing those symptoms, but also keeping in mind the necessary oral hydration, the key to success is being well hydrated and helping patients through that as well. And then you're trying to give medicines that don't interfere with seritinib, even electinib, that won't interfere. So you do your best to help patients. You find that patients get sick of being sick with their belly ache and abdominal cramping, and there's really no great drug to help patients with that side effect. So we do our best with holistic approaches, sometimes acupuncture, recommending other exercise for treatment and helping patients.